ICMA University is pleased to present this online program entitled The Public Health Crisis and Racial Inequities. We are very pleased to welcome all of you to this presentation. I would like to draw everyone's attention to the links box located on the left of your screen. To download a PDF copy of today's slides, simply click on the link and a separate web browser window or tab will open so you, that you can view, save, or print. The webinar evaluation is also in this area. You must be logged into ICMA University to access the survey from here, but you can also find it on your dashboard after today's program by clicking on the program title. It is my pleasure to introduce today's presenters, Gordon Goodwin, Genesis Gavino, and Dr. Fabiola Cruz. Gordon Goodwin is the Government Alliance on Race and Equity Director at the New Race Forward, where he works with senior leadership teams to help nonprofit organizations achieve mission and program alignment. He has 30 years of experience working for and with foundations, community development organizations, and public-private sector consortia in both metropolitan and rural settings. His work has contributed to poverty reduction and racial equity public policy efforts with organizations such as PolicyLink and the Aspen Institute, among many others. Genesis Gavino currently serves as the Resilience Officer for the City of Dallas, where she works closely with the executive team across the organization to implement the Resilient Dallas strategy and establish a compelling resilience vision for the city by working across all departments and with the local community to maximize innovation and minimize the impact of poverty, financial insecurity, health and wellness, equity, transportation, and government performance. Dr. Fabiola Cruz is an epidemiologist and PhD candidate in microbiology and medical zoology from Puerto Rico. As part of the CDC molecular diagnostic team, Dr. Cruz has worked mostly with vector-borne viruses such as dengue, chikungunya, Zika, and most recently COVID. Dr. Cruz was instrumental and helped to lead the development and implementation of Vialba's COVID contact tracing systems. This innovative system has proven so successful that it is being implemented in the entire island. Speakers, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Gordon Goodwin, and I am the Director for the Government Alliance on Race and Equity at Race Forward. And we're going to be taking a look at structural and institutional racism and its role, uh, particularly in COVID-19. Uh, just a little bit about, my apologies, Let's move this forward. So for the next 20 minutes, um, we're going to learn a little bit about the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. Uh, we'll also be talking about institutional and structural racism as a public health crisis, and really framing that in the context of COVID-19, uh, and taking a look at some of the root causes for why we are seeing such disparate death rates uh, amongst people of color, and in particular African-Americans, but also Latinx people um, with this crisis. The Government Alliance on Race and Equity is both a network and a movement of people who are working in government to advance racial equity. 
Uh, they are doing this by incorporating all that we know about how to do organizational culture change uh, to uh, actually ensure that we can name race as being one of the key factors that we need to focus on in our society if we're to make progress. We are also doing this by incorporating racial equity analysis and using data-informed approaches to create new ways of delivering government that further all of our lives and improve all of our lives. But in particular, are about closing the gaps and removing the barriers between marginalized communities. And that is communities of color and low-income communities. Uh, the membership network has grown significantly over the past few years, uh, starting out with 12 members. Now we're at 212 members as of this past week. And it's still growing. And there's room for more. If you are interested in GARE membership, please look us up on the Race Forward website or at the GARE website. COVID-19 is certainly with us all in terms of how we have been responding to this emergency. Uh, want to acknowledge that local government has played a key role in addressing the challenge and has been really moving forward into what's first in in terms of responding. And for all of you who are working in local governments, we thank you because uh, without your significant efforts, we'd be much worse off uh, than we are right now. But as we start to take a look at accounting for the impact of COVID-19, one of the things that we have to really pay attention to is the fact that it is having a disproportionately negative impact, particularly in terms of deaths, but also in terms of the contracted rate. So when you're taking a look at these numbers, you'll note that the blue here for Louisiana is the share, uh, the African-American share of popula population in Louisiana, which is 32%, but then you'll also note that the share of COVID-19 deaths is at 70%. And similarly with Illinois, if black people are 15% of the population, 42% uh, is the death rate. Um, is, uh, black people represent 42% of the death rate from COVID-19. And you see the disparities for Michigan and North Carolina. And in Chicago in particular, uh, you'll see that black people are 30% of the population, but 69, 70% of the total deaths. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is this happening? Um, is it um, the case that African-Americans are not doing some things that they need to be doing? and that that is what is contributing to a large share of the deaths, or is there something else that's happening here that actually begins to help us understand better? What types of structures are contributing to this? And one of the things we'll be talking about today is the social determinants of health, which essentially frame why we have racial inequity in our society today. We know uh, based upon this theory, which 
had to be a hypothesis before it was a theory, and then data was applied to it to help us understand that we can actually predict how well you, were, you will do in our society based upon the race that you're born into, the zip code that you're born into, the language that you speak at home, your native language. These become key predictive factors. So for every important measure in American life, from infant mortality to life expectancy, we know that race predicts how well you will do. And we're seeing that play out as a key piece for pre-existing conditions for communities of color. So when we start to dig deeper into what are some of the key factors that are contributing to these deaths, this data is given to us by the CDC, which has done some more analysis about what's contributing to significant deaths for communities of color. Living conditions are one of the key reasons. When we think about living conditions, we have to take into account density. If one of the key factors for protecting oneself from contracting the disease is social distancing, then one of the things that we have to realize is you get as much social distancing typically as you can afford. And we also have to realize that because communities of color have been segregated by law, it's been a part of our history of government, and because they were kept out of certain professions, um, have been kept out of pathways to careers, that the generational impact of that is that we see in our cities a lot of residential housing segregation. That residential housing segregation tends to have people living in substandard housing conditions. And so when people cannot actually get access to housing that is of better quality, uh, when they can't uh, socially distance themselves because uh, they may be in more crowded circumstances, that contributes to the outcomes. We also see that many neighborhoods where there is a significant concentration of people of color are farther away from grocery stores and medical facilities. Uh, we know the role that FHA played in terms of creating redlining standards that essentially created non-investment zones uh, for banks, for small businesses. We also know that that played a role in how the private sector thought about investment and public sector bond ratings. So it's no surprise that there's infrastructure that has not been updated, that you wouldn't have medical facilities necessarily locating in a lot of these communities, a lot of our communities and that you'd see that grocery stores, when we talk about food deserts, are a significant issue, getting access to fresh, healthy food, which is key to being healthy. We also know that uh, due to the fact that there is an over-concentration of people of color in lower-income categories, because they're not getting access to better education and career pathways, that 
there's more multi-generational living in households. We also know that the, there are some cultural reasons for that as well uh, in terms of how we are preserving our families and how we are living together. Finally, significant um, overrepresentation of people of color in jails and prisons and detention centers also contributes to the spread of COVID-19. Work circumstances also have to be taken into account. There are significant numbers of people of color in essential industries. When you take a look at black and Hispanic workers, uh, they are significantly represented in service industries. Uh, Hispanic workers accounting for 17% of total employment, but 53% of agricultural workers. And African-Americans, 12% of all employed workers, but 30% of licensed practical and licensed vocational nurses. And this is also for nurses' aides and for people who are working in facilities where we are taking care of our older people as well. And we know that those facilities have been hotspots uh, for uh, the spread of COVID-19. Um, for these workers who are using public transportation significantly, um, they are at risk. Uh, for living in more crowded living conditions, having to take public transit, um, and also having to work on the front line of where COVID-19 is, is spreading. Other conditions that we have to take into account have to do with the quality of employment as well as other pieces of our structure. So lack of paid sick leave for lower paying jobs, significant issue. Jobs that don't have health insurance that comes with them means that there's less likelihood that there's going to be a relationship, a long-term relationship with the doctor and less desire to go to an emergency room or to seek treatment uh, when you are feeling sick. Um, the long-standing distrust of medical institutions in particular is really grounded in part, particularly in the African-American community with the Tuskegee studies that were essentially perpetrated on black men um, who were injected with syphilis and then studied uh, over the course of their lives for how syphilis would actually um, carry out long term for them. Those types of real experiences really create um, a level of trust gap uh, between the black community and the medical professions. There are language barriers, uh, also getting sick, but not being able to think that you can take a day off of work because it means a loss of income is also a key factor. And finally, due to the fact that there has been generational harm done, not only through slavery, but also post-slavery, poor living conditions, um, communities of color that were relegated to living very close to industrial sites and other undesirable parts of cities and communities. There's a higher prevalence of chronic conditions like asthma and other types of circulatory conditions that are more prominent 
in communities of color due to the fact that there has been uh, more of a role of keeping us out of uh, the American family. The history of government and race is quite key here. Um, since before the country was a country, going all the way back to the 1600s, there have been laws that began to determine how well we would do in our society based upon our race. And uh, when we think about those laws, they really determined where you could live, whether or not you could own property, whether or not you would be considered property, whether or not your service to the country during a time of war was going to be acknowledged and rewarded, whether or not you could own a firearm, hire somebody of a different race to work your land, um, be literate or numerate, um, actually be able to vote or to serve on a jury all significant uh, pieces of our history. That first slide was about uh, really the breaking of over 500 treaties with Native nations and the implications of that on the Native population. Uh, when we think about Social Security Administration, um, absolutely groundbreaking legislation that ensured that when you reached an age where you could not work, that you would have some type of a living wage, but definitely excluded two big professions, farm workers and domestics, that had significant presence of people of color. And for domestics, also significant presence of white women. When we start thinking about FHA, it's fairly well known now that the very standard which created racialized housing segregation was actually built into the underwriting standards um, that framed how mortgages were going to be assessed and purchased by the largest purchaser of mortgages in the country. So these are all ways that government has helped to set the frame for the pre-existing conditions that we're dealing with now with COVID-19. The fact that we have passed some significant legislation over the decades and over the years uh, to address state-sanctioned racism and segregation came about because there's been significant levels of activism and protest, which is what we're seeing right now, to call government's attention to its role in actually establishing a framework for all of us. Um, making sure that that essential promise of government of the people, by the people, for the people, is one that it could actually live up to and wasn't simply aspirational. Now, the fact that we have passed those laws, which didn't happen without protests, then led to having a race-neutral approach where we didn't talk about race at all in governments where it became a topic uh, that we could not consider. That has not actually helped us make progress because the racial inequities that we can measure in our society today, which are significant, um, have to be addressed head on. We have to be able to talk about race if we're going to be able to address the challenges of race. And that's what the GARE movement is about. 
It's about taking a look at how we can address uh, racial, racialized outcomes in our policies, practices, and procedures so that we can actually ensure that we're living up to that promise. When we're talking about racism, we should note that there are three types that we acknowledge within GARE. Individual racism is bigotry. It is using words and gestures to define a space that helps us understand that people of color don't belong. It's the thing that calls us to um, a lot of our conversations about race because when we see it, we feel compelled to actually address the challenge head on. We want everybody to know uh, where we stand on this, but it also is one of the areas that keeps us sometimes from getting to some of the practices that we use every day in government that may be unintentionally contributing to racialized outcomes. And that's where we talk about institutional racism. Policies, practices, and procedures that work better for white people than for people of color. Now, it might be unintentional. It might not be the case that when we have loan programs that come out that don't explicitly acknowledge in-home types of businesses, like in-home childcare, that don't explicitly create um, a smoother pathway for small businesses that are sole proprietorships, um, which is predominantly what um, uh, people of businesses owned by people of color have a more significant presence in that area, that might not have been intended from the loan program. It might not have been intended that the underwriting standards from a bank would get in the way. At the end of the day, um, it's not about the intention. It's really about the outcomes. How are these getting in the way of us actually achieving a racially equitable society? The structural racism piece is just an understanding that there are multiple institutions in our lives. And there are multiple institutions in our lives. We rely upon them to have a life. Um, we don't deal with them on an individual daily basis. Everyone wants access to health care, to uh, accessible retail, transportation to get there, housing that is safe and affordable, recreation, employment, and we rely upon structures for that. When we talk about structural racism, we're really talking about multiple institutions that we all rely upon and that government plays a significant role in delivering um, so that we can have a life worth living. Um, and the fact that a lot of those structures do have practices that contribute to racialized outcomes. We lead with race because we understand that racial inequities are deep and pervasive. They've existed since before the founding of the country, and they are woven into every significant institution in American life. Um, we can't really have a conversation about important issues like immigration without addressing race head-on, because that certainly has been a racialized conversation. We have very different levels of treatment and policy based upon race and country of origin. 
being very specific about race is absolutely essential if we're going to include communities of color and get insights from them about how we can begin to change the way that we do our governmental practice. If we're not specific about naming race, we are bound to develop solutions that don't include their insights and absolutely miss um, the challenges that we're facing today. But while we lead with race and we're explicit about it, it is not exclu exclusive as the only area that we focus on. So race and gender, race and sexual orientation, disability status, religion, clearly important to understand that all of those areas have been areas where government has sometimes played a role in legally excluding people from participating in our society. And yet, when we take a look at some important areas like, well, let's take a look at the differentiation in the gender pay gap. We start taking a look at the pay rates of white women or Hispanic women, women overall. For men, it's 80 cents on the dollar. For Non white non-Hispanic women, 77 cents. For Latina women, 53 cents. Native American women, 58 cents. Black women, 61 cents. Slightly higher for Asian women. We can see that race becomes a weighting factor, even in this category that's well known as being inequitable. So when we're talking about racial equity, what we're talking about is getting to a point where we can no longer use your race to predict how well you're going to do in our society and where we are developing better outcomes for all people because we are finally acknowledging that race has been one of the most enduring factors uh, for creating an inequitable society and that government has played a role in creating that in the past through its legal enforcement of racialized laws, and now it can play a role in actually dismantling that. But that requires us to target our strategies on those who are worst off in our communities, and that is often and disproportionately communities of color. And it also means moving beyond taking a look at the services that we provide to start looking upstream that what's contributing to people having to use those services and rely upon them? Where are our systems and structures actually contributing to people being in bad circumstances? Lastly, we talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion as if it's one concept. DEI is often just referred to as one solid piece. But we need to acknowledge that diversity has often meant you know, what has been the casting call um, in our jurisdictions? Um, how many different representations are there in our institutions? Uh, do they reflect the full racial and ethnic uh, diversity of our communities? Which is important. But it's only really important when it starts getting down to how people are included in improving our decision making and helping us gain insights about where we begin to remove barriers to participation so that we can actually get to a point where we have justice. 
So the, the inclusion piece, uh, the quality of the participation uh, across identities and cultures, absolutely key. Um, when we don't see people of color reflected in our management structures and also uh, having the ability to direct power and resources uh, in places that where it's really needed so we can achieve a change, that's a key piece to, to focus on. And in the equity piece here, I just want to point out, equity is not just about everybody having the same resources. It's about how we distribute those resources to achieve outcomes uh, so that everyone has the opportunity to be successful in our society. And that is an inherent tension around how we do our work because equality is typically just about resource allocation. Equity is about how people's lives are better off. And with that framing, I'm going to turn things over to our next presenter. Thank you, Gordon. Good afternoon, everyone. As previously mentioned, my name is Genesis Gavino, and I currently serve as Resilience Officer for the City of Dallas. Today, I'm going to provide an overview of resilience and what that looks like in the Resilience Dallas strategy, talk briefly about health disparities in Dallas, um, go over the equity impact assessment tool that we developed, and then show how we apply the assessment tool to um, with a COVID lens, and then provide tips on how you can use the same um, tool in your communities. For some background on the city of Dallas, we are the ninth largest city in the country and third in Texas behind Houston and San Antonio. Just like the phrase says, everything is bigger in Texas, and that definitely applies to our city, which spans over 385 square miles. I think I can confidently say that I have now visited every nook and cranny of this great city, and it only took me three years to do so after moving here from Seattle. We are also a very populous city of over 1.3 million people, and young too, with an average age of 32. The North Central Texas region, which includes Dallas, has consistently ranked in top locations for corporate relocations because of its expansive transportation infrastructure, low tax rate, and business-friendly regulatory climate. Other trends driving the supercharged growth is the diversity and strength of the economy and low-cost living. Dallas is a prosperous community, yet despite the pre-COVID economic growth, large segments of our community are not thriving. Too many of our residents are confronted every day by challenges to simply exist. Homelessness, poverty, unemployment, underemployment, social and racial inequality, gun violence, food insecurity, and access to quality education. This is Dallas's true resilience challenge, overcoming the social and economic challenges that deny many of our residents social justice and economic well-being for themselves and their families. Resilience is the capacity of individuals, communities, institutions, businesses, and systems within a city to survive, adapt, and thrive in the face of both shocks and stressors. 
City resilience is about making a city better in both good times and bad for the benefit of all its residents. And this is what the Resilient Dallas Strategy sets out to do. Adopted by Dallas City Council in August 2018, the strategy is a roadmap to begin the effort of closing the gaps. Goal one is advancing equity in city government. Goal two is to ensure Dallas is a welcoming city to immigrants and all residents. Goal three is to increase economic mobility for Dallas' vulnerable and marginalized residents. Goal four is to ensure Dallas provides residents with reasonable, reliable, and equitable access. Goal five is to leverage partnerships to promote healthy communities. Goal six, to invest in neighborhood infrastructure to revitalize historically underserved neighborhoods. And finally, goal seven is to promote environmental sustainability to improve public health and alleviate adverse environmental conditions. Understanding the importance of data-informed policymaking, the strategy underscored the importance of understanding the baseline conditions before implementing policies, programs, and services. Through the Community Health Needs Assessment and the Equity Indicators Report, we have a clear picture of health disparities that exist in our city. We know that underlying health disparities across this country occur along racial and geographic lines. Where you live, work, and play have a negative effect on your health. For Dallas, the highest burden of disease and mortality are disproportionately faced by African Americans and Hispanic residents who live in Southern Dallas. Hispanic residents are two and a half times more likely than white residents to report not having a healthcare provider and four times more likely not to have health insurance. Average life expectancy in Dallas County is 78.3 years. A, close, a closer look at the zip code level 75215, which is in Southern Dallas, is as low as 67.6 years while 75204, just across the way over a highway, is as high as 90.4. Understanding, understanding the inequities, the Office of Equity and Office of Resilience designed a tool with guidance from a similar tool in King County, Washington, to identify communities that are at high risk and vulnerable to prolonged hardship with less resources for recovery. The purpose was to understand who is vulnerable to the lasting impact of COVID-19. To identify these communities, we use three key factors. Race and ethnicity, because this type of geography in this city, like so many other cities, dictates outcomes so consistently. Economic status, both about income and wealth, to understand economic impact. Age, because COVID has such a disproportionate effect on the elder community. And not listed on this slide, uh, but will be in the updated slides, is the Centers for Disease Control's Social Vulnerability Index, because it provides us an understanding of the resilience of communities when confronted by external stresses on human health. The key questions we use to assess and understand the equity impact are, do
Do Black, Hispanic, and Native American populations together make up more than 70% of the community? Does the area have 15% or more of its families at or below 100% of the federal poverty level? Do less than 50% of the area's households own the home they live in? Are more than 12% of the area's residents 65 or older? And finally, is the area rated high on the Centers for Disease Control's Social Vulnerability Index? With the tool, we analyzed more than 50 zip codes within the city limits and a few that overlap with other cities along our boundaries. Based on our analysis, only one zip code scored five, meaning it met the criteria for all five assessment questions. The zip codes that scored a four, as you see on the screen here, are not ranked in any way. It's just how the algorithm ordered them. I should note that each category is equally weighted and one category does not receive more points than the other based on their percentage threshold. This zip code map illustrates the color coding of each zip code based on their risk score with five as a red, or with five as red, four as mustard or tan, three as beige, two as yellow, and one as green. With the zip codes color-coded and mapped out, we see that our assessment aligns with everything we know about our city, that disparities and inequities are concentrated in Southern Dallas and have the highest risk for prolonged impact. One thing to note about using zip codes for this analysis is that you will get pushback. By pushback, I mean feedback from people in the green or yellow zip codes about pockets of poverty in their neighborhood. So we conducted the analysis at the census tract level to get a closer look and pinpoint these pockets of poverty. And when we do so, you see more represented on the more red uh, areas represented on the map meaning there are more areas that are at higher risk and, can suffer and will suffer prolonged impact. So all this data analysis is great, but how do you make it applicable to what your community is seeing and experiencing due to COVID-19? In Dallas County, these slides are actually a week old because when I submitted them, I did not have current data, but the updated slides that you will have uh, after tomorrow will have numbers that align with what I'm about to say. In Dallas County, we have over 15,000 positive cases with 59% of them reporting ethnicity as Hispanic. Looking at the hospitalization and deaths, Hispanics are disproportionately affected Hispanics account for 41% of the city's population and 40% for the county. And I should note that this week, we had two of our highest positive cases, case counts reported, 413 on Wednesday and 392 on Thursday. The trend for hospitalizations and ICU beds is also upwards. And even before we saw the record numbers, community leaders were already concerned about the disproportionate effect of COVID on a Hispanic and Latinx community. The city's health and healthcare czar appointed by the mayor convened a meeting of Hispanic and Latinx leaders in the community to include educators, ministers, 
healthcare providers, policymakers, and even elected officials to gather insight on how we can help support the community. The first step was to provide a level setting and understanding of the distribution of positive cases and how that relates to where we know the Hispanic population is at least 50% of that community. So we use the equity impact assessment tool. If you recall, one of the assessment questions was very specific to race and ethnicity. What this map illustrates is the filter of only the census tracts that are at least 50% or more Hispanic and holding the rest of the assessment questions the same. On top of the filtered map, we provided the number of positive cases and their reported zip codes. Again, disclaimer, these numbers are um, old numbers and just used to demonstrate the high case counts in these areas. What surprised me was the reaction of the meeting attendees. Many were aware of the disproportionate effect, but I think the, the visualization of where Hispanics live in Dallas and the alignment to the high case counts created sort of a shock factor for them. I think sometimes when we know the ins and outs of the data, we expect the same of others and are shocked when the information is new to them. The question we posed was very generic. What is driving the overrepresentation? The responses provided to be so rich and insightful that went beyond the surface of just needing access to care, but also the need for fresh food, access to quarantine space, because more so than not, households are multi-generational, all sharing one space, in addition to access to information, whether it's from the internet or from local television. It was in this meeting that we heard for the first time that when the county or city has a press conference, all English stations automatically pause programming and show a live feed of the press conference, but Spanish stations continued with their regular programming. And what may seem like very basic action steps are monumental in this community. Because of this meeting and a better understanding of the needs, we identify testing locations and are able to tailor the type of information and resources available to them at testing sites. So how else are we using this tool? As national headlines began reporting the disproportionate effects on communities of color, especially African Americans, the city manager had the foresight to direct staff to form an internal working group and focus on equitable health access. Led by the Office of Resilience, the internal working group is, comp is comprised of departments from areas of public safety, quality of life, human and social needs, and equity and inclusion. Our four focus areas are testing, tracing, community outreach, and public awareness. So far, the equity impact assessment tool has been used to determine where to deploy the mobile testing units, which recreation centers in identified zip codes would be the first to, dif to distribute free face coverings to residents, and now where to deploy demonstration projects to provide internet connection to our residents to not just close the homework gap, but ensure that under the that the underemployed and unemployed have access to resources. The tool can be modified and made applicable to your community. The key areas and assessment questions and their corresponding thresholds 
should be modified for what makes sense in your community and what you know of your community. All of the data that we use in our analysis is public information that you too have access to. But I warn you, a data analyst is necessary and will save your life. At the very least, someone who knows how to work Excel magic. Without my data analyst, I'd still be conducting the analysis row by row as opposed to the sophisticated formulas my, analysis, my analyst created. Before I close, I want to go full circle back to this slide um, and talk about equity. As I mentioned earlier, someone in the northern green zip codes remarked that they too have pockets of poverty. And it was unfair that the zip codes in the southern sector, where you see the red, beige, and the mustard or tan uh, colors, that they will now get all the attention and all the resources. I'm sure you have a similar person or group or elected official in your community with the same sentiments when it comes to equity. While yes, they may have pockets of poverty, their areas have access and proximity to opportunity that those in the red and the mustard tan or tan zip codes do not. Each of your communities have its version of a southern Dallas, and I'm sure what you'll find is a healthcare desert, a food desert, lack of transportation, and so on. But this didn't happen overnight. What you see here is the result of racism, institutional and systemic racism that allowed redlining, under and disinvestment in neighborhoods and highways to be built through communities. When I stated that the tool can be modified based on what you know of your community, what I hope is that you will know and understand how institutional and systemic racism perpetuated by local government created these circumstances and that the time is up for us as public servants to make it right. I thank you for your time and the opportunity to share my work with you. Um, I've listed my contact information on the slide should you reach, wish to reach out. And now I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Cruz. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for the invitation. I'll be talking a little bit about our initiative in Puerto Rico regarding the contact tracing and as a municipality system that we are adapting now um, in the whole island. Um, there are three things that are key to have an effective response uh, to a pandemic, and one of them is to have at first an early and strict lockdown. This measure provides us with time to prepare the system and to develop um, at first, we, we all uh, didn't have a lot of resources for testing. So this lockdown um, prevent us to collapse um, the, the system. So, um, and then to improve the, our response in order to acquire more um, tests, and have early detection, an ability to do molecular tests and serological tests, not only on severe cases, but on mild cases, and also on cases identified uh, with an epidemiological link um, as contact. Um, also, to identify and to isolate the cases and contacts. 
and this is the important thing because once you have all the testing available, you need to have a good strategy um, in order to identify the cases on time and do the case investigation in possibly in less than 24 hours and then identify the contact in order to cut the change of transmission. Change of transmission. And this, as you can see, many of you have seen this graph. Um, you measures will prevent the system in your community and in the state um, to collapse. And here in Puerto Rico, we did uh, an early street lockdown and it helped a lot. Now we are doing um, the flexibilizations and uh, implementing now the contact tracing in the island. The municipality contact tracing that we are developing, we choose to start with the municipality. Why? Because that's the closest governmental entity um, to the community. And when you are not prepared um, for a pandemic like this one, you have to start with an organization that is close to your community and that will attend um, effectively and quickly the necessities of your community. So the implementation started in the, in the municipality. It took um, like three days to start the, the, the system. It's curious because when I started the system, uh, I didn't have um, the guidelines for COVID, contact tracing for COVID, so I took the guidelines from Ebola, uh, from the WHO um, response, and adapt them to COVID um, using the um, infectious period and incubation period as, as a system to adapt it. Um, then um, this program for, um, obviously uh, helped us to identify the cases, follow the contact, uh, contact of places and people and events. Um, and then also a, an important thing is that usually when you're doing contact tracing, you usually start with a positive case. But in our system, in the municipalities, we start with cases that have symptoms and still don't have the test. So this is this is a prevention strategy um, because may, some of them uh, we have identified them since they had since symptoms. We isolate them and the contact, and then uh, they were positive cases. But the job is already done. So um, we we have a huge um, window and opportunity to cut that transmission chain um, at time. And this is um, in order to, to prevent um, user infections. Also, uh, an important thing, uh, thing of having this uh, system at the municipality level is that you can coordinate better the aid to individuals and families that are directly affected by COVID. We also included, this is not part of a contact tracing program, but we included, included um, a traveler, traveler um, monitoring system because at that time, Puerto Rico didn't have um, so many cases. Uh, we, we knew that 
um, a source for the cases where cases that were important from the state. Um, so we started, we have a big population that worked in the state and they came back. So we started the travel, the monitoring system and providing them with aid and with testing. Also, uh, as um, the flexibilization is taking um, place, um, we are working with them educating them and providing them and the facilities to do the testing for their employees. And finally, um, this municipality system supports the response of the Department of Health. At the beginning, uh, we were not part uh, of the Department of Health um, response, so our system provides them the ability to identify the cases that the laboratories were not reporting because we had a poor system, reporting system. We are now um, improving it, but at the, at the very beginning, it was really helpful to, ha to have this response and identify um, those limitations. What is contact tracing? It's simply contact tracing, just um, the mission is to cut the chains of transmission. You have an, in an initial case, uh, that case can infect um, two other three that depends on on the contact uh, that is gaining. That's important. That's why it's important to have strict lockdown measures because it uh, lower um, contact, um, lower contact, lower um, opportunity for the virus to transmit. Uh, so we are hoping to just cut the chain of transmission. Um, putting people at isolation when they are specifically on the incubation period because they exposed, they will then go to an incubation period. They are still not infectious, but if you isolate a person at the incubation period, when they get infectious, they are not going to be in your community. And that's why you prevent um, future infections. contact tracing um, system is based mainly on, on confidentiality and solidarity. It's important that we must know that human connection um, is the key, is, uh, um, is irreplaceable, is the key to have this uh, contact tracing systems working. Uh, in the municipalities, the contact tracing is voluntary. Um, you have to promote that the, it, the system is confidential and that we are going to help. It's not only to isolate people. You have to do the human part. You have to help them. You have to provide them with food um, and other things, uh, cycle, um, help for um, mental illness and uh, for chronic illness. So they have to feel that you have them, that you can provide not only um, the guidance on how to um, deal with the virus and infection, but with other things that are in human, humanness. Our contact tracing starts where we initially didn't have um, a direct communication with the Department of Health. So in the municipality, we placed a call center that was voluntary for people. 
and we increase the education on the communities on how to use um, our system. So they started calling and we started to identify the cases because they present um, to us the laboratory results or, or the evidence and we started to work with them and to help them. Then the contact tracing has two parts. Um, you have you need to have a good case investigation, in the, which is here, in order to move to the contact tracing um, part that you identify the contacts, you provide them with education, um, you give them the facilities to, to be tested, and, and to provide any other aid or, or things that they need. The project started in Villalba, Villalba is in the south um, of the island. Um, Villalba has um, a population of about 25, 26 inhabitants. Um, the total number of our staff at the beginning, it was me as an epidemiologist and then five people, two which um, are case um, investigators and three of them um, conduct tracers. And that's, this, this is our dashboard. Initially and a month later, all the cases that we were working, we worked now, the, the, this was updated by May 11, but now we have closed around 300 cases, uh, not all positive, but suspected cases and contacts and, and travelers that were um, part of our program. And that's really um, amazing. We started here, as you can see, with 16 cases closed. Now we have more than 300. Advantage of having this system, this system um, that started in, in Yalva will now be implemented in other and 17 municipalities, which is good. The Department of Health um, in Puerto Rico, they took um, the program that we um, implemented in Villalba and we are replicating it in other municipalities. Um, the advantage, we actively are looking for the cases rather than waiting for them to reach the system. Just for you to know, in Villalba, we have confirmed PCR, confirmed molecular, we have 16 cases. Only four of them were presented by the system, and the other 12 were found by us. Our program, at some point at the end of April, the, the cases, from the positive cases, all uh, were uh, contacts that we found it. And that's good, that's good, because um, that's the, the the indicator that you want to have. The new cases are new cases because you found them, not because they went to 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 your program because they were ill. We are we are working for, with prevention now. You identify the symptomatic people. There's no other way to identify asymptomatic people. The, um, no other better way because you can identify them if you do screening of the employees, but in the community, you you will find them in these contact tracing programs. Also, identify hotspots hot um, in communities, uh, in, in business. Provide resources. Uh, you can coordinate at the community level 
coordinate the resources that you have to, to impact the affected individuals and families. Education, education is key because they feel when you implement this at this level and you can and you have the resources to to educate your people um they they know that something is happening and they they will become uh, educated on not only COVID but how to use the programs that are being implemented in these municipalities as a consequence you will increase um, the social responsibility and equity. Observations. I have the system will only be affected, effective if the population has trust in it. Uh, as, as I mentioned, and the human connection that the first call um, will establish is, is important because um, these more than cases are human, they have needs, and they are afraid. So you have to give them the trust that you will be there with them. It's not only count numbers uh, or isolated people. Track cases before they are confirmed. This is important, especially with suspected cases. This is um, a prevention thing. Um, if you have a case with symptoms, just do your part of um, quarantine, isolation, uh, identify the contacts, notify them, um, and then you will do the testing as it happens uh, in order to prevent on time and identify those cases. Support, this program supports um, the statistics presented by the Department of Health. As I mentioned, if a laboratory is not reporting, um, with using these programs, we can identify those laboratories and give them the, the resources that they need to in order to improve the implementation and the reporting. Identify communities at risk. This is really important, especially um, you can identify, for example, in our municipality, um, the hotspots, the initially initial hotspots were on communities with low education level. You need to attend um, the mental health illness. Uh, people are very afraid and anxious about this problem. Uh, there is stigma and we have to work a lot with this. And when you are providing resources uh, to these programs, you need to have um, people that can work with mental illness and provide those services. Our system also uses other programs at the municipality. Each municipality is different, and that's the good thing because they are different because the communities are different. And we have to use um, those things in our favor and implement this at the municipality level. Uh, epidemiologically, the system will be the same, but the, the system uh, will be directed according to the, the community needs. There, is, there are people in our community, sometimes we, we forget this, there are people in the communities that lack like, um, telephones and transportation, and it's important to integrate community leaders, ministers of faith, uh, to establish a better surveillance 
um, and to have the visibility uh, at the community level. There is always um, room for improvement. You don't have you you don't need to have the best applications, the best program for this. You just need to implement it because the the important thing is to start. Um, you will get better with with the experience. Uh, but what is really at risk are lives more than numbers. This is an epidemiological response, but we have to be um, we we have to realize that there are lives they are afraid and they need us. So health um, is the most valuable profession pressure that we have. We have to be ambitious and competent when it comes to fighting for our health. Um, now in Puerto Rico, we are moving forward and implementing this in other municipalities. Uh, the program will start on July 1st. Thank you. Thank you for all. <laughs> Thank you so much. At this time, we'll open it up for questions from our participants. As a reminder, to submit a question through the web conference system, simply type your question into the chat box located at the lower left side of your screen, and then be sure to click on the Submit button. We'll just give you a, a moment or two to submit any questions you might have. And it looks like we do have a question that's come in here. Uh, for your tracing contact, for your contact tracing program, did you uh, contract with community-based organizations um, and use volunteers or hire staff in the health department? We hire staff at the municipalities. And now, with the Department of Health, the Department of Health will give, will give the financial support to the municipalities and they will um um they will have the the, the people they they will do the, the employment thing the municipalities but not voluntary We have another person who doesn't have a question right now but just wanted to let you know that they're really impressed with all of this presentation there was a question, Dr. Cruz, that um, came up here about a, a video. Were you planning to play a video, or were you not oh, going to play yeah. that in your presentation? Sorry. Let's see. I can play that for I, you right now, if you'd like. I can. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Let me just go back. Sure. Um, one moment for me. Um, and 
this, this way we do have a bit of time, so uh, participants, please feel free to take advantage of this opportunity to submit their questions. Um, while we're waiting, we're just going to play a short video here, um, um, and I'm just going to start that at this point. Thank you. The global emergency that has unleashed the COVID-19 pandemic has caused millions of infected people and thousands of deaths around the world. Puerto Rico has not been free of the effects and has been subject to a significant increase in cases at the island level in a short time. Due to the crisis that the pandemic has formed at a national level, the municipality of Bialba has been the first to implement an effective contact tracing system to stop the spread of the virus in our city and the island. Contact tracing is a method used to identify and monitor people who have been in close contact with a positive case or is a potential positive case of COVID-19. This system has been tested and has given positive results in other countries with previous epidemics such as Ebola and SARS. Designed and implemented by the epidemiologist Fabiola Cruz, the system helps identify cases through three lines of possible contagion. Our tracking team uses a variety of methods, including phone calls, emails, and social media messages to reach all people who may have been affected. After being identified, the so-called contacts receive education and support to understand their risk, help identify symptoms, and know what to do to separate themselves from others who have not been exposed. We also inform them of the possibility that they may infect others, even if they do not have symptoms. Information obtained by the tracking team is never disclosed, as your personal information is confidential and will be used only for public health. The cooperation of our citizens has been key to making the system a success, but we must continue. By participating and doing your part, you can help prevent your loved ones and others from being infected. Together we will make our star shine brighter. Thank you. And it looks like we may have gotten, gotten another question that just came in. So I'll go ahead and read that out to you. Um, regarding the equity impact assessment tool, uh, one of the questions was, do Black, Hispanic, and Native American populations together make up more than 70% of the community? Why 70%? Um, that number seems rather high. So for each, um, in answering that question, we did it for each zip code and then census tract. 70% um, because we know the combination of when we look at uh, the makeup, the racial makeup of our community, what that's about the threshold for our community. Great, thank you. Um, an another participant comments, thank you for your time and information. I'm happy I was available to sit in this educational opportunity. We always love the good feedback there. Um, an another participant says, I would love to see training webinars on these various toolkits. Is that something um, that could come out of this?
So one thing I'll say is that uh, the Government Alliance on Race and Equity routinely has trainings on how to use racial equity toolkits and toolkit analysis. We have been having COVID-19 rapid response calls that take place on Fridays. And if you visit the GEAR website, uh, you could uh, download uh, the calendar e-bike for those. And uh, we routinely have uh, discussions of racial equity analysis and how that can be used to inform better decision-making uh, for COVID-19. So love to have you. Great. And another question here. For the data presentations, um, what was your council's reaction to seeing the stark impact of the, re of the redlining? Um, what are your next what are the next steps communities can take to unwind things like that? Um. So I'll um, start off. Um, at least in Dallas, you know, um, I spoke a little about the response that we had regarding when we presented the information on the equity impact assessment tool with the comments of, you know, I have pockets of poverty in my community, and it's just always going back to the framing of what is equity and really knowing your communities and understanding um, how, you know, where, what people are experiencing on the ground and um, how policies, programs, and services have created these um, inequities and the redlining here that you, or that you saw in our maps. Uh, we also last year launched or, uh, yeah, launched the Undesigned the Red Line project where we talked about and provided information and educated our entire community about redlining and what that looked like in Dallas. That was really well received. So prior to this presentation, there was already that foundational um, education of redlining in Dallas. And so it wasn't so much as a surprise, but it was just an affirmation of what we know um, and all of the work that we have yet to do to um, dismantle those. So. And what recommendations do you have to start a discussion with elected officials on addressing racial inequities? So one thing that you can do is when you have data, um, such as you know Genesis has presented, that begins to illustrate where we have significant differences in experience that are racialized in our communities is to really begin to start that conversation um, as a community, but also to begin to provide uh, this information to elected officials um, and uh, to actually, you know, ask them um, how this then becomes a priority that's reflected and a lot of the decision-making that you're doing at a city level, a municipal level, or at a county level. Uh, and I think that one of the things that we have to acknowledge <clears throat> about uh, the effects of redlining long-term is that, you know, this has been a multi-sectoral issue. It's not simply a lending issue. But we do need to acknowledge that the history of other types of industries that have been involved um, with real estate, such as, you know, uh, access to the real estate profession by people of color. Um, that's a part of the problem. Uh, people, uh, people of color were left out of the profession uh, for a significant period of time. When we start taking a look at uh, 
I'll just say it, nimbyism, right, not in my backyard, when we see that there is still an over-concentration of uh, low and moderate income housing uh, being put in certain parts of a city but not actually distributed across the entire landscape um, and that uh, continually the challenge is about uh, you know, what's going to happen to my property values. Uh, there is a role for elected officials to play there in terms of having together uh, some type of unified message about who we are as a community <clears throat> and what are we willing to do in order to have a racial equity that best reflects who we are as that community. Um, elected officials are you know, those stewards of the public trust as well as the public person. I think they have an obligation to do that. That doesn't often happen though without there being uh, some concerns that are raised by people at the constituency level. So I also think this is um, in part uh, a challenge of how we begin to have our voices be heard across all communities about what a solution is uh, for our entire community and not just having it relegated to certain parts of it. And presenters, that was our last question. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up today's presentation? I just want to say thank you for everyone um, for attending this webinar and uh, giving us great feedback and the very thoughtful questions that you ask us. Um, and but you know, I want to reiterate what um, Gordon said about how, using data. Um, you know, when we did our when we first previewed our uh, assessment tool, we got that we took the feedback that we received about you know getting down at a closer a census tract level and really looking at the community level. Um, but data is your best friend. Data does not lie, but data is just the beginning um, to help you frame the issues and to tell the story. And so don't be afraid of using data to your advantage and to help you um, move things forward. Thank you, and with that, we must conclude today's webinar. A special thank you to our presenters and to everyone who joined us today. Please take a moment now to complete a brief evaluation of today's program by clicking the evaluation link to the left of your screen. Your comments and suggestions are important to us as we plan future events. The survey must be completed in order to receive a certificate for this program. You can also access the survey from your ICMA University dashboard by clicking on the program title once you are logged in. Thank you for your participation in today's webinar. We hope you will join us again soon. Today's program is copyright 2020 by the International City County Management Association with all rights reserved. And this does conclude today's program. Have a wonderful day. You may now disconnect. <laughs>